Father God, thank you for your word, and thank you for a church family, a church body that loves you and is hungry to learn your truth. Lord, I pray now that you would um, minister the word to us through the Spirit, help us understand in even greater depth and more fully in our experience what it means and what's involved in living connected to the power source, the precious Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, how many of you did watch that little athletic contest on Monday night? Can I see your hands? Yeah. That was pretty impressive, wasn't it? I mean, that was an old-fashioned spanking that we administered. Um, I, read, I read in the paper that Columbus, Ohio, had the highest viewership of that game than any city in the country. Over 50% of the homes were tuned in to the game. Because my question was, what were the other people watching, you know? <laughs> Two and a half men or what? I mean, that's just kind of crazy. But hey, here's something I observed. I was at a party with some friends, and everybody was there in their, in their jerseys and their caps, and we were cheering and all that. And, but I, I noticed something. When the Buckeyes scored a touchdown, none of my friends stood up and said, hey, the Buckeyes scored a touchdown. And when the Buckeyes won the game and were declared national champions, none of them said, hey, the Buckeyes are national champions. You know what they did say? We scored a touchdown. We won the game. We spanked those guys. We're the national champions. Now, there's a name for that. I looked it up on the Internet. It's actually a psychological phenomenon called identity fusion. Identity fusion is a uh, phenomenon that happens when someone's sense of personal identity gets all wrapped up, totally subsumed in the identity of another person or a group or a team. In their mind, they and the team are one, <laughs> nearly indistinguishable. We are the Buckeyes, right? So when you went into your office late on Tuesday morning with your jersey on and slapped your co-workers on the back and said, man, we took it to them last night, didn't we? You were manifesting an acute case of identity fusion, and you didn't even know it, did you? <laughs> well, I guess there's nothing wrong with that. There's probably some extreme forms, but it occurred to me that in the book of Romans in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, in writing there, advocates something very similar to identity fusion when it comes to how God's people should think about themselves. He makes a strong case that our identity as believers is really all wrapped up in the identity of who? Of Jesus Christ, that's right. That our identity is fused with his to the point that he even refers to believers as being in Christ. And that goes a lot deeper than just wearing a cap or a jersey, right? What we see in this marvelous chapter that we've been studying, Romans chapter 8, is, is Paul basically profiling two groups of people, contrasting them with each other. And so if you have your Bible or your app, you can go to Romans 8. That's where we'll be today. You can pull the little study guide out of your worship folder. The two columns represent two groups of people, and Paul is, is, is drawing a contrast between those who are in Christ fused with him in their identity, and those who are not in Christ. Here's how he draws it out, starting in verse 1, where he, you, you might recall, he wrote, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So 
the in Christ crowd are, are, are no longer condemned by the law. They've been set free from slavery to sin, thankfully. And through the death of Christ, the righteous requirements of God's law have been fulfilled in them. But those not in Christ are still condemned by the law. They're still bound and remain slaves of master sin and the righteous demands of God's holy law have not been fulfilled in them. For those who are in Christ, it is said in verse 4 that they walk according to the Spirit, that their mind is set on the things of the Spirit, and as a result, they experience life and peace. But for those who are not in Christ, they walk not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. Their mind set on the things of the flesh, and it does say the mind set on the flesh is death. For those of us who are in Christ, it says our thoughts are submitted to God, verse 7, and as a result, we're pleasing to God. But for those who are not in Christ or who are in Adam, their thoughts are hostile towards God, and they that are in the flesh, it says, cannot please God. We who are in Christ are in the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We belong to God. But those who are not in Christ are in the flesh, and they do not possess the Holy Spirit, and they do not belong to God, not in this sense. It is said of believers that their body is dead or dying because of sin. But for those who are not in Christ, it's said that their spirit is dead because of sin, dead in sin. For those who are in Christ, dead, our dead bodies will be raised to life one day, to live forevermore. Amen? Verse 11. For those who are not in Christ, their dead bodies will be raised one day only to die again in the second death. Now, this is a very stark contrast, isn't it? Black, black and white. Maybe that bothers you a little bit because in your experience you've known unbelievers, people who are not in Christ, who have some very good ideas and have blessed our society. And you've probably known some Christians who have messed up and gone down a different path. And Paul knew that. Paul was not oblivious to that. In fact, in the previous chapter, Romans 7, Paul admitted his own very frustrating struggle with sin. That's the chapter where he, he says, man, I, sometimes the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, because they're, they're evil, they're wrong, I end up doing them. I, I cave into the flesh more than I care to admit. And he was an apostle. And so I take some sort of twisted comfort in Romans 7. Maybe you do as well. Now listen, here's what I believe Paul was trying to get at in Romans 7. It's important to understand these two things about what it means to be a Christian. Listen, first, we hold these two things in tension. Having a new identity will affect your lifestyle. Being in Christ will affect your behavior. When someone puts their faith in Jesus as their sacrificial substitute, it produces a fundamental change in their identity that goes a lot deeper than just wearing a jersey, right? Changes something foundational in us. The Bible says we're one with Christ, joined with Christ, part of Christ. Our identity becomes fused with His, and that will show up in the way we live our lives. It has to. So that's this truth. But there's a second truth, and it's this. As long as we are in these bodies we'll struggle with sin. As long as we are in the flesh on this earth, we will struggle with sin. I hate to break it to you, but you will not achieve moral perfection before you die. You won't, despite your best efforts. It's important to accept that, because if you don't, you're going to become very discouraged with yourself and maybe even with God. 
So we must hold these two realities in tension. Yes, Jesus has given us a new identity. It will show up in our lifestyle, but as long as we are in the flesh, we will still struggle with sin. That's chapter 7. But now in chapter 8, here's the thing Paul wants us to get from this. As believers in Christ, yes, you will need to fight against sin, but you now have a new power source within you for fighting. The Holy Spirit, whom Christ sent. Remember, Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell his body, the people of his church, and to empower us. And so his spirit will aid you in your battle. Now, when I look at this, when I look at this table on your outline there, these two columns, a question pops up in my mind, and it's this. How do we who are in Christ relate to those who are not in Christ? How do we interact with people who are not yet believers in the Lord? Are we supposed to stay away from them? Are we supposed to separate ourselves from them so they won't corrupt us? So we won't be contaminated by their mind of the flesh? Should we just kind of all keep huddled together so we stay pure and undefiled by the world? Doesn't the Bible say, come out from among them and be separate? Are we supposed to separate ourselves? Or is that mindset just snobbery, you know, just religious snobbery, and what we're really supposed to do is immerse ourselves, dive into the culture, and rub shoulders with people who walk in the flesh, try to blend in so we don't come across as pharisaical do-gooders who think they're better than everybody else. Is that it, immersing ourselves? I mean, didn't Jesus pray that his people would be sent into the world, not removed from the world? He called us to love our neighbors, right? Not separate ourselves from them. So what is it? Separation from worldly influence and sinners or immersion in the world so that we can have an impact? Or is it something in between? Is there a way of engaging with people that enables us to be salt and light without getting so drawn in that we lose our saltiness and our brightness and end up becoming indistinguishable from the world? Well, aren't you glad that you came to church today so that I could solve this dilemma for you. <laughs> I do believe that Christ's call for his people is neither of these two extremes, separation from them or immersion in the culture. Separation can lead to isolation. I mean, how do you evangelize if you don't have any contact, right? But immersion in the culture can lead to compromise, there must be another option if it's true that Jesus calls us to demonstrate and declare his gospel to our neighbors. And I believe there is. Let's call it spirit-led engagement. Spirit-led engagement. Pastor, should I send my kids to Christian school so that they won't get contaminated by the world? Does sending them to public school make me a bad parent? Hey, should I go to the movies a lot so I can stay on the cutting edge of cultural engagement? Am I a bad Christian for having Netflix in my home? Should I never let my kids stay overnight with their friends from school, lest they become corrupted? Should I attend the company Christmas party this year where everybody always gets plastered and as the evening wears on, the jokes get raunchier and raunchier and raunchier? Questions, questions, lots of questions. 
Here's my recommendation for those of you who are in Christ, who are believers. Here it is. Saturate yourself in the word of God. Read or hear a portion of it every day. Fill your mind with God's truth. Preach the gospel to yourself all the time. Remind yourself of why Jesus died for you in the first place. Learn to love holiness. Pray and ask God for wisdom. Get in a small group. Get in community with some other believers. Discuss these questions with other Christians who've walked with God for years and years. Submit yourself to spiritual authority in your life, to that umbrella of authority, those that God has placed over you. Ask pastors and mentors for their insight and their perspective. And then depend on the Holy Spirit who dwells within you to lead you and make the wisest decision you can make. That's what I have to offer you today in those questions. That is what I would call spirit-led engagement with the people of this world who don't know Christ. You know, many of those situations that I mentioned earlier are not black and white in Scripture. There is no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt send thy children to a Christian school. You know, it's just not, it's not in there. The answers to those questions are not the same for everyone who follows Christ. Some of you probably should go to the company Christmas party so that there's at least a little bit of light in that dark place. I have a friend who goes to his uh, Christmas party every year for his company, and he said, you know, I, I'm glad that I go because whenever I go, they always ask me to say grace for the food. And then at the end of the night, when everybody's plaster, they always ask me to help drive people home so the roads will be safe. He says, I think it's a good thing that I go. Others of you should probably not go, and you should stay home because you know yourself. You'll be the influencee instead of the influencer. You're not strong enough. You're not fortified enough in Christ yet to be in those kinds of environments, and you might get pulled back into those old patterns, the mind of the flesh. That's what I'm saying. God has provided each and every one of us who know Christ with a personal empowering guide to dwell within us, to lead us, the Holy Spirit of God. Praise God for that. And depending upon the Holy Spirit to lead you, that's the way to go. If you belong to Christ, He will lead you. It may be different from how He leads someone else, one of your friends, but He will lead you. You just need to what? Follow. Follow. Now, I better get to the message today or we're going to be in trouble with the clock. So it's actually related to what we're talking about because here's the theme of Romans 8, verses 12 through 16, and that's where we find ourselves in our study. Here's, here's the theme of our section for today. All true children of God are being led by the Spirit of God. So would you say that with me? All true children of God are being led by the Spirit of God. You say, where do you get that? Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Man, this is so good, isn't it? This is so encouraging. Verse 9 already told us that everyone who belongs to Christ has the Spirit living in them. And now Paul adds that the Holy Spirit comes to lead us. He comes to lead. He comes into our lives to lead our lives. He's a leader. 
And so you might ask, well, where is he leading us? Where will he lead me in my life? That's a great question. And in this passage, Paul begins to answer that question. And he shows us three ways that the Holy Spirit leads us. There's three places he will lead us to. There's many, many more. But we just have time for three. Notice verse 12. Paul writes this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Pastor Steve, where will the indwelling Spirit lead me? Where does he want to take me? I'll tell you this, number one, he's going to lead you to fight against sin to kill it. He's going to lead you into battle with the sin that remains within any of you ever heard of the great Puritan writer named John Owen? John Owen wrote this famous statement, Be killing sin, Christian, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, you guys know I'm a grace guy, right? I'm a gospel grace guy. I am. You know that about me. But I, I think some people misunderstand the effect that experiencing grace will have on our hearts. Some people think that Receiving grace from God means that you can go out and sin up a storm and God will cover you. These people think, well, I, I love to sin and God loves to forgive, so it's a perfect match. I love this grace thing. But to Paul, that kind of thinking for a Christian was unthinkable. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer, no way. Unthinkable, Romans 6.1. Listen to this. Paul writing to a young pastor named Titus. He ministered to a congregation like this. He wrote this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. So grace is training us, is what he's saying. To do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, God's grace trains us but it does not train us to sin with a clear conscience. No, it trains us to renounce sin and live godly lives. Jesus laid down his life to redeem us from sin, not so that we could accept sin and embrace sin and commit sin and feel okay about it. You following me on this? Listen, among other things, the Christian life is many things, but... One of those things is this, the Christian life is a prolonged battle against sin. It is. Yes, we've been freed from our legal obligation to serve our old master's sin. Jesus emancipated us from that obligation. But listen, sin remains in our flesh. Our fallen humanness still clings to us in this life, doesn't it? And it aims to take the members of your body captive again, your eyes your ears, your hands, your feet, your mind. That's why earlier in Romans, Paul wrote this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. 
Sin is a deposed monarch. Don't let it take power again. Don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So fight sin. Seek to kill it. Yield your bodies to God. That's what true Christians desire to do. Their their new heart that they received, transformed heart, beats for the glory and fame of Jesus, and anything that detracts from that becomes an enemy that needs killing, needs execution. By the way, this is another thing that sets believers apart from unbelievers, those who are in Christ from those who are not in Christ. We hate what God hates, and we love what he loves, right? We hate what he hates. You see, to unbelievers, sinning is fun. (laughs) Sinning is something to indulge in. Sin is something to live for. Sin is something to joke about, to celebrate. It's no big deal. They don't have a heart to battle sin. But to us, sin is what sent our Savior to a bloody cross. It's what we've been liberated from. We hate sin, but it's still around, so we fight it. We fight against it in our culture, we fight against it in our city, we fight against it in our church, we fight against it in our families, but mostly we fight against it where? In here, in our own hearts and lives. It's not just out there, it's in here. A few weeks ago, Nikki read this to us from up on the platform. Listen to it again, Colossians 3, 5, where Paul wrote, Put to death, therefore, that's a violent term, kill it. Whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness or greed, which he says is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It deserves judgment. And in these two, you once walked when you were living in them, back in your B.C. days. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, clothed and cloaked in Jesus, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Listen, I've said it before. Know this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It's true. Ask the prodigal son, the younger brother. Ask the older brother. Ask King David. Ask your mom. (laughs) Ask, Ask your dad. Ask anyone who for a time yielded their members to the impulses of the flesh to dominate their lives. Sure, there's pleasure for a season, but in the end, in the end, you end up with a mouthful of gravel. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers, doesn't it? Now notice, put to death the deeds of the body. How? How do we fight sin? With whose power? Three words, verse 13, do you see it? By the Spirit. By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. 
You see, the Holy Spirit in you will lead you to say no, no to temptation and yes to Jesus. He will. That's where he's leading you. The question is, will you listen and will you follow his lead? Will you listen to his voice, draw on his strength, walk in his power, take his way of escape? Pastor Steve, where's the Holy Spirit going to lead me? He's going to lead you to fight against sin with the intent to kill it. He will empower you to do that. Now, in our battle against sin, the Spirit's going to do something else. He's going he's to help us see God differently. He's going to help us relate to God differently. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Steve, where's the Holy Spirit going to lead me? He is going to lead you to relate to God as your father, as your daddy, like an adopted child. Now, there are many reasons to love adoption. Adoption is, is beautiful, isn't it? It's glorious. Maybe the most powerful reason to love adoption is, is the picture that it gives us of how God brings people into his family. Now, you know that human beings are not born into the family of God, right? They're born into another family, so to get into the family of God, they must be adopted, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit to take those who are in Adam, in the family of Adam, and bring them into the family of Christ. And every time one of our families in this church adopts a child, like has happened recently with a number of our families. To the rest of us, it should be a beautiful picture and reminder of salvation, of what God has done for us in adopting us into his family. Praise God for adoption. It's the better option. It's the better option. And Paul is saying that the spirit who indwells all believers, all Christians, will lead us, yes, to fight against sin, but also in the midst of our battle, He will prompt us to call out to God as our Father for help. It says Abba. You see that word there, Abba? Do you know what that word means? That's an Aramaic term that means Daddy. It's a sweet term. It's a term of endearment. And so let's ask, when was the last time in the midst of your struggles that you called out to your heavenly Daddy? For me, it was this week. You know, my earthly dad lives 3,000 miles away. He's a good man. There's so many times that that proximity, that just he can't help me. Maybe your dad lives, I don't know, your dad might live down the street or 50 miles away or 500 miles away. But I'm telling you, when you cry out to your heavenly father, he is always there. I can, this week, I said, Daddy, Father, Abba, Daddy, Father, I I need you. What I'm facing right now in my life, I do not have the strength to deal with. I need you, Abba, Daddy, Father. I walked right into his office like I own the place. The president of the universe, big mahogany desk, you know, a billion miles wide. I walked right in, sat down, said, Abba, Daddy, I need you. I need your nearness. I need to know you're close. I need your presence. I need to feel your embrace. 
I need your fortification and your strength. He is there for me. My earthly dad can't always be there for me, but my heavenly father is always there for me. When you need to repent of your sin because you caved into temptation again, I did it again. He is there to hear you, to forgive you because of Christ, to help you. When you need to cry out for his strength because your tanks are empty, you've been watching the needle go down. He is there with his super abundant supply. When you feel yourself falling back into that old pattern of fear, fear of people, fear of man, maybe even unhealthy fear of God as your judge condemning you, the Spirit of God will open your eyes and lead you to call out to your Abba, Daddy, Father, and say, Daddy, help me. Help me. Did you know that if you're in Christ, God is no longer your judge, He's your Father? He poured out all His judgment on His Son so that He could pour out all His mercy on you. That's the good news of the gospel. You know what? The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit's the one who prompts us to cry out to our Father. In fact, we're going to see later in our study of Romans 8 that the Spirit himself actually prays for us in those times, especially in those situations where we're so weighted down, so burdened down, we don't even know what to say. And it says, in those moments, the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings that are unutterable because he knows the will of the Father. Isn't that good? When you can't even pray for yourself, God the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank God for the Spirit leading us to see God no longer as our judge, but as our daddy, our father in heaven, prompting us to cry out to him. That's great news. We who are in Christ are God's children. He's given us the gift of his Spirit. The Spirit was given to lead us, and he will lead us to fight against sin, to call out to our heavenly dad. Like a little child. Like a little kid. I need your embrace, your provision, your help. You know, there's something else the Holy Spirit will lead us into. Number three, where's the Spirit going to lead you? Well, I'll tell you where He wants to lead you. He wants to lead you to experience assurance of your salvation. One of the first verses I ever memorized as a follower of Jesus was this one, Romans 8, 16. For the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, think about that for a minute. Think about that. It says the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, that's God, is testifying to my spirit. Like there's this conversation going on, I guess, in here. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit, saying, Steve, you're one of God's kids. You belong to Him. You've been adopted. You have. You've been adopted into the family of God. You belong to God. Yes, you still sin, but he's your daddy now, not your judge. Your salvation is secure, and God did it. You are in Christ. That's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know what that's called? It's called having assurance of salvation. Heard that term? Assurance of salvation. That's when you know that 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 you belong to God, that you're on your way to heaven. You're 100% sure 
Like my former pastor used to stand up and say, he said, you know what? I'm as sure of going to heaven as if I'd already been there a thousand years. That is assurance of salvation. And some of you have that for yourself. You're worried about some other people, but you have that for yourself. You know where you're going. Others of you, though, have doubts. You long for that assurance, but you live with plaguing doubts about where you stand with God. You know, you hear someone talk about being sure and 100% sure, and you're thinking, that's not me. You're not there. It bothers you at times. Now, you've heard it said that, that part of a pastor's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, right? So could I do a little bit of that second part for a moment? Would you still love me? <laughs> the reason that some of you have doubts about your salvation and where you stand with God is because you're not saved. The doubts are legitimate. They're, they're well-founded doubts. You should be concerned. You know, the Bible writers were not averse to just saying, hey, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. They didn't mind doing that. The whole book of 1 John is a series of tests to know whether you're really in Christ or not. And it haunts me, honestly, as a pastor to know that some of you are here week after week after week and you hear the gospel message in church, in your small group, and you're sitting here even today and you're not a genuinely born-again person. And you have doubts about where you stand with God. And the reason that you don't feel saved is because you're not saved. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things in your name? And I will say, I don't know you. Leave away with me. That haunts me to think that there might be someone who has heard the gospel many times and isn't a believer, a true believer. I've asked the Holy Spirit, if that's you, to let you know that today, to just confirm that. You know, if that's God's mercy then to you, those doubts are God's mercy to drive you to salvation in Christ, you should thank God for those doubts. If, if this is the case, some people are, are constantly, it's like, oh, I don't, know, I don't know if I'm good enough for God. I don't know if I'm good enough. Let me solve that for you. You're not good enough for God in your flesh. You could never be good enough for God. His standards are too high. You say, well, I'm better than my coworker, you know. I'm a nice person. I pay my taxes. I help old ladies across the street. I've never murdered anybody. I don't sleep around. I'm a good person. I'm better than them. I'm better than Hitler and Saddam Hussein. It's like never in the Bible does it say to compare yourself with any other human being or with Satan. It says compare yourself to God. And that's why the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You need someone to be perfect for you, to live the life you could not live. And guess what? That's what Jesus did. He came, was born, lived that law-keeping, law-abiding, perfect life of loving God with all his heart, loving his neighbor as himself that you can't live. Then he died on a cross 
to take your sins, rose from the grave, went to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to convict you sitting in your chair today that you're not saved yet, but you can be because of what Jesus has done for you if you'll repent of your sin and embrace the sacrifice of Christ as your own. You can have that assurance of salvation so that you know that you know that you know that you belong to God. Man, don't leave here today with those nagging doubts. So where do your doubts come from? There's another source. could be God mercifully placing those doubts in your mind to drive you to Christ, but it could be that you're a true believer in Christ, a genuinely born-again person, and you have doubts. Is that true of any of you? It's like, oh, man, if I were really a Christian, I wouldn't do this, or I would feel more of that, or how come my prayers aren't getting answered, or, you know, you know a person who's really devoted to Christ, and you're like, well, I don't have what they have. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not even a Christian. Let me tell you something. The, the, the devil, he's an accuser. He's a liar. He's not for you. God is for us. There is an enemy. The Bible calls him that old serpent for a reason. And he's talking to you. He's piling on false guilt, and he's reminding you of your past. Hey, listen, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future, okay? That's from the old Carmen song. Remember that? Love that. <laughs> Look, he's not telling you the truth. He's called the accuser of the brethren for a reason. And he's, he loves to pile on false guilt, remind you, know, this happened to you, and you did this, and if you were a true Christian, that wouldn't happen, and all that kind of junk. And you've got to learn how to resist the devil. You need the truth, don't you? Where is this coming from? Where are these doubts coming from? Are they coming from God to drive me to salvation, or are they coming from Satan to debilitate me in my Christian life so that I'm basically worthless for the kingdom? And I would believe that the spirit of truth would want you to know the truth about your condition, wouldn't you? So ask him. In a few moments, there's going to be some prayer partners up here on either side, and, and, and they're trained to pray prayers over people for spiritual insight. And this is what you need. You need the Holy Spirit to tell you either I, you are saved or you're not, and you can be today if you'll embrace Christ. And I hope you'll avail yourself of that opportunity to do that. Steve, where's the Spirit going to lead me? He's going to lead you to fight sin. He's going to lead you to relate to God as your daddy. And he's going to lead you to assurance of your standing before God in Christ. That's what the Spirit wants to do. So we'll stop there for now. Let me finish by just reminding you of what, where we've been here. Romans 8, the, the big theme of Romans 8 is this, that God is for his people. God is for us. God is for you. If you're in Christ, God is for you. And you know what? He hasn't, he didn't just say it. He's backed it up. He's proved it. He's demonstrated it in a hundred different ways. But the way that we're, we're looking at in Romans 8 is he's demonstrated by giving us a gift, the gift of his Holy Spirit. A wonderful gift, an empowering guide, personal empowering guide to walk with you through your life. And that spirit comes to lead he comes to lead your life, and he will take you places that he wants you to go, and they're good places. And we looked at three of them this morning. So my question to you is, the Spirit is leading you. Are you following? Are you following the Holy 
Spirit of God. How many of you want to follow him? Can I see your hands? It's like, I want to follow him. I do too. I want to follow him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I um, thank you for Romans chapter 8. We would be so in the dark if you had not revealed the truth that is in this wonderful passage. Lord, I suspect that some of my friends here in, in this auditorium this morning have some doubts. They have some doubts about where they stand with you. I pray that you would give them the courage to come and receive prayer in just a moment. And I pray that you, through your spirit, you would let them know the truth about where they stand with you, whether they are in Christ or not in this moment. Lord, I know that there are some who struggle with seeing you as daddy. Because their earthly daddy didn't love them like you love them. And when I talk about you being their father, they cringe. It's not a comfort to them. It's, it's something they resist. And oh, Lord, how I pray you would overcome that through your spirit so that they could rejoice in how you father them. Lord, many of us struggle against sin. We have things in our lives that are not becoming of someone who is in Christ, and we know it. Some of us give in again and again and again, and it plagues us. Oh, how we need to experience the truth of verse 13, that by the power of the Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the body. Strengthen, my friends, today. Strengthen this congregation. Strengthen this church by your Holy Spirit, that we would live holy lives. That when we do mess up, when we slip up and fall, when we sin, when we fail, that we would come to you as our Heavenly Father and know that you're not our judge anymore. You're a dad. And you paid for our sins through the blood. And you cleanse us and you send us back out with renewed resolve and passion to live in a way that brings honor and fame to Jesus. Thank you for this wonderful work of the Spirit. Work among, among us now as we respond. In your precious name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.